grit represents this combination of perseverance and personal passion, right? It's understanding and have enough self-belief that you can go through a lot of no's to get to a yes and persevere through that. And it doesn't mean you have to be the smartest person. Grit is oftentimes recognizing where your weaknesses are and where your strengths are and being able to double down on those strengths and using that perseverance and the passion that you have to break through and get the job done and get the deals done because you're going to hear no a lot more than you're going to hear yes in many cases. So that to me is great. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Welcome to the show. Thanks, buddy. I'm glad to be here. I'm going to read you your background back to you. Admittedly, as I was looking through these notes before you jumped on, I was positive that I was going to ruin and butcher many of the companies that you have worked for, most of which are somewhere in Europe. So let me give this a shot and then just tell me where I screwed up. You got your bachelor's in advertising and marketing from Texas Tech. Then you went to Tracy Locke as an account manager for a year and a half. And then, oh, here we go, DDB, Needham, AE for two years, and then DDB, I'm not even going to go there, account manager for a year and a half, and then Hey, H-E-Y-E for eight years. Hiya. Hiya. Okay. I should have just let you do this. Regional account director in Central Europe for about two years, European account director for three years, VP of international account director for three years. Then in 2006, you went to the NBA. You became the Senior Director of Global Marketing Partnerships. You spent a year and a half doing that until about 2008. Then you went back to DDB, if I'm not mistaken, and you spent three and a half years as their Director of Client Development in North America until 2012, then back to the NBA, just couldn't get enough. And then you had a really nice six-year run there, starting in 2012. You were the VP of Global Marketing Partnerships for two years, VP of International Biz Dev and Marketing Partnerships for a year. SVP of Global Marketing Partnerships in China, NBA China, for about two years, and then the SVP of Team Marketing and BizOps for about a year. That ran until 2018. And then you joined Activision Blizzard in 2018. You became the Chief Revenue Officer for all things brand, media, esports partnerships. You spent maybe just under three years-ish doing that. And then we were just talking about this, like right as you were jumping on, as of a week or two ago, you were promoted to the head of Activision Blizzard Esports. Congratulations. What did I screw up? <laughs> you did really well. And I don't often go back and look at my sort of historical CV. So thanks for thanks for <laughs> taking me a trip around the world on that one. So I was looking up high up and it, the only thing that I could find in Google, I guess I should have gone to LinkedIn, was a puzzle company. I assume it's not that, correct? No, so actually High End Partner is a part of the DDB Worldwide Advertising Agency Network, which is a part of Omnicom. So in theory, I was with the same company there for almost 10 years. Just Tracy Locke also was a part of Omnicom at the time. So I went from Tracy Locke to DDB Worldwide, which is a large multinational advertising agency around the world, to High End Partner in, in Germany, which is also part of the same network, and then to the MBA. And interesting enough, probably what High here in the U.S., in Europe, you would know Haya very well. It's a very large-scale mm. agency, particularly in the German markets. But in the U.S., you would know Haya Partner because while I was there, what we were famous for was creating the tagline, which has now been around for, God, forever, I'm loving it, for McDonald's. And so that oh. was the claim to fame of the program we worked on and the big pitch we won 
and high-end partner, this little agency in Munich, Germany, actually created the worldwide I'm loving it tagline for McDonald's. Come on. It's been around for 20 years. Yeah. Were you there when that pitch was? I like was, when- yeah. So I was a part of that team, both locally and globally. So I sort of reported back into the global head network here in the US, but sat with the German team. The German team there really did most of the work. My job was sort of taking that and bringing it across the international markets, but it was a very collaborative effort. And, and the way McDonald's worked at the time was we all pitched it individually. So they had three big networks, they had us. They had TBWA, they had Leo Burnett. We all had to pitch it independently. And this little agency in, in Munich, Germany won the pitch that became, the, <laughs> the, I think, one of the most longest standing taglines uh, in modern history. No kidding. I'm having dinner with the CIO of McDonald's next week. I will tell him on your behalf that, uh, yeah, you're welcome. Wait, tell me about that. So at the time when you guys came up with it, were you like, this is good? Or was it like, this is, this is so stupid? No. So to just back up a step, you know, I, when I got out of school, I started working in advertising and then was able to get to Chicago, which is where DVB was centered out of for the McDonald's business. Obviously McDonald's is based in Chicago. And while there for the first year or two, I started working on the McDonald's business that actually took me to Europe. We, the time, you know, the wall came down in what 89 and McDonald's was building out a lot of restaurants and really expanding their footprint in Europe. We had a need to support our businesses in a lot of our Eastern European markets. So I actually moved to Warsaw, Poland as a starting point when I was a young kid and then worked my way through over to Munich, Germany and sort of growing regional capacities. And so while there, we went through this pitch process with McDonald's and our agency in Munich actually came up with the German phrase, ich liebe es. Ich liebe es is basically, I'm loving it and sort of translated into English, but in German means something slightly different. And so the pitch actually was done initially through the German language and then had to be translated, obviously, into English because it needs to be an English tagline for the globe. That was a different approach than perhaps what DDB in North America was doing. So every country, the top 10 markets pitched it individually and they won. And so they then went on to create music with Justin Timberlake, creating a global tagline and campaign for the entire world out of this little agency in Germany. It was a huge feat for them. A gentleman by the name of Jürgen Knaus ran that agency. It was probably the shining star of his career. And, you know, I then spent a long career working on the McDonald's business across the Omnicom network. Oh, man, we could spend the entire episode just talking about McDonald's. I was watching, I'm sure you've seen it. It's the Netflix, I think it's Netflix, the documentary where they do the Monopoly Tell me that was your advertising agency. <laughs> it depends on the market, right? That whole that whole product <laughs> was built by uh, a different company. That's a crazy story. That is a crazy, crazy story. Anyway, we'll put it in the show notes. We're not going to go into it now. I have way too many questions to ask you. Okay, so the other thing that kind of struck me about your background was that you went from DDB to HIA, which is a subsidiary of DDB or something like that. Then you went to the NBA for only a year and a half. Then you went back to DDB. Then you went back to the NBA. Maybe I'll start with the first stint. Why were you only there for a year and a half? And then why'd you go back to DDB? So one of the things that I've always felt about sort of my career, my path is, is that oftentimes when you're in roles, the people that you work for are incredibly important, right? And while I was at DDB, I obviously built a strong relationship with the executive team there. And I took the job at the NBA, I had a passion for basketball. It was a very sort of, I wanted to get back to the U.S. after spending almost 10 years outside of the U.S. I felt like my skill set would translate into sports marketing and sponsorship, which is ultimately what it was. 
by way of what I was doing on the McDonald's business at the time. And so I was able through a ton of interviews and being told no originally, and then getting back into the, you know, sort of take a role over with the MBA. But while I was there, one of the executives that I worked for became a very senior executive in DDB globally. And at that time, they- At the NBA. No, no. So a former boss of mine became in essence, the president of North America for DDB and introduced me to the CEO, Chuck Brimer of the global company. And they were looking for a head of new business to go off and build and sell you know, the agency in different types of pitches. I had never done sales before. I mean, I had done them. I guess you sort of are always selling when you're in account management, but I had never done a true sales job. So I was a little hesitant and I had just gotten to the MBA about a year and a half, but he convinced me that taking the sort of brand marketing skills that I had developed through the advertising world could translate very well into a sales position because now you can really speak the language of the marketers and the brands that you're talking to rather than just being a salesperson. Mm. So I had a lot of trust and faith in him and that company and decided to make the jump into that space, which was new for me to go into it. The first time I really went into a true sales position where I don't know how much you know about the, the advertising industry, but being ahead of new business for an ad agency, it is a job that you have to get used to the word no a lot, right? You lose many times more than you win these big pitches, but it was a wonderful experience. I basically learned everything I've now translated in my career from a sales perspective because of those first couple years of selling DDB to brands and going up against big agencies and small agencies. But in the course of that period, go back to the MBA, someone who I deeply, deeply, deeply trusted and believed in, who's now the deputy commissioner of the MBA, Mark Tatum, also took on an expanding role at the MBA. And they had some things change on their end. And he called a couple of years later and said, look, I'd love for you to come back, but come back in a sales capacity rather than where you were before. And I was just ready to sort of take that next step as well. So I went back to the MBA in a much different capacity, working for him, working for a gentleman by the name of Emilio Collins and went right into a, a sales position at the MBA. And that really stuck with me. And the idea of selling this amazing property and the players and the product that it is this was back when David Stern was the commissioner, really struck with me and obviously it hit a passion point to me just sort of being a basketball fan my whole life. So, and then I just, you know, from that point on, I stayed at the NBA for, for quite some time as you see there. So, you know, it was a people thing. Like I followed people and I think that's really important in your career path. Like companies are important, don't get me wrong, but oftentimes companies come from the people who are there. So for me, being inspired and following the right kind of people was important. I made that decision when I went back to DDB and I made that decision when I went back to the NBA. So not to rewrite a Hollywood script for you here, but were you like the ad agency guy on Wall Street doing the two martini lunches and absolutely living life? Well, look, if you go back and watch any episodes of Mad Men, you'll realize that Bill Bernbach is constantly referenced in that. And Bill Bernbach was the founder of DDB. There you go. <laughs> a little bit of that. I will tell you. Uh, cool. And I've had a lot of tough jobs in my career. That was the hardest job I've ever had. Being that a new business for an ad agency was, well, you're you're working incredible hours. You What's are incredible? 12 to 15 hours a day when there's a pitch, sometimes, you know, a lot more. In fact, for pitches, you'd be spending all nighters for three or four days in a row getting ready. And, and it's theater, right? It's not only an idea that has to translate someone's business, but it's the theater of presenting that idea and the script and getting everybody and basically managing an orchestra of how you bring that idea to life and convince a brand that they need to take that path 
to be successful, right? And that's a big step that brands have to make and a big commitment, right? You can imagine what it would take for someone to now go to McDonald's and convince them that they need to take a completely different path in the way they talk to customers or pick any brand, right? So these are monumental decisions that these brands make. And agencies are oftentimes at the center of trying to show them why that makes sense. And so that's different than trying to sell someone a sponsorship for a sports product, right? Right. The scale of it's quite different. When you prep for three, four days doing these pitches, what was your hit rate? How often would you win those pitches? Look, you'd go through phases where if you hit your stride, you felt like you could walk in and win every pitch. But over the course of a year, I think if you were lucky to bat 50%. And you're doing the same prep, whether or not you win or lose, it's, it's a well, similar. Well, you try to learn, right? You try to yeah. learn what you didn't do well the first time. And every yeah. brand is different, right? So there's certain things to the prep that are there, right? Because the new business director's role is really coordinating and managing all the pieces of the puzzle. You have yeah. creative directors building ideas. You have media directors driving the media plans. You have account management dealing the media marketing strategy. You have strategic planners. Like it's a... It's a concert, right? And everyone has to be making the music together. And then you have to be bringing that idea to life. You also then have to be able to connect with the client, right? And Mm -hmm. build that relationship with them. And so every pitch is different. And then every pitch goes through, it's a process, right? Sometimes these pitches take six months because they start looking at 20 agencies and they knock it down to 10, then they knock it down to five, and then three actually go make the pitch. And you're doing RFP after RFP and it's a grind. It's a real grind to get even to the fact you could go pitch your idea to your prospective client. So it's a ton of work and you lose a lot more than you win in many cases. And you just have to have the perseverance to keep going in the belief and the ideas that you create. In that world, how important are creativity and charisma? I just imagine that's everything. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. Like creativity is the centerpiece to that world, right? You have to come up with creative ways to renew, invigorate, or build new brands. And and that's all based on ideas. It's all centered on ideas. And then how do you communicate them? How do you make a prospective new partner believe that what you're showing them is the answer to their challenges, right? Yeah. And that's a combination of creativity, charisma, trust, relationship building, all the things that go into why you like a person. Right? Why you would commit millions of dollars of your budget to this idea, because you're in many cases, you're putting your career on the line if it doesn't work. I can't wait to get there on the Activision stuff. But you, what we'll see is that there's, I think, a really common thread of creativity being a central tenant of your entire career. Is there anything that you do, any ways that you cultivate creativity? Like, are there any things that Brandon does on his own that Get the juices going. Yeah. Well, I I wish I could sit here today and tell you I'm like this super creative person. (laughs) What I think my strength is in that area is finding those people who are, but more importantly, just giving people the rope and the ability to be creative and then being able to be open to those things. I've worked with really amazing creative directors. I've worked with creative directors that are more challenging. I've worked with strategic planners and ideators and game IP developers who are super creative. And then the question is like, how do you take this creative idea and funnel it into something that can really be understood, right? Or it can be taken and then executed against. And so that I think is where my strength lands is just sort of letting that process work helping guide it, but then helping bringing it into something that in fact can be then understood and presented in sort of 
put forward to someone in the right way. Like oftentimes in the current world that I'm in, I took a lot of the learnings that I took where we are today for Activision Blizzard from the advertising industry and from the sports industry, which is when we go pitch to a potential new sponsor, we don't just go and say, hey, you could slap your logo on all these interesting assets that we have. Everything we present is an idea, right? It starts with an idea of, hey, here's the platform and the idea that you can have with our games and with our esports. And then we show them how we'll execute it. And maybe those executions have logos in certain places, but it's all centered on an idea that is stronger than just saying, hey, we're giving you sort of some media exposure. And that comes from the advertising world. It comes from the sports sponsorship world where you have not only people sort of servicing accounts and creating ideas, but someone in the middle really trying to figure out how you take this idea make it into a platform that brands can then understand and build off of. In the past, sports sponsorship was just like, hey, slap your logo on something. But that's yep. changed. It's not just us in the sports industry in general. That's completely changed. Brands want more. They've demanded more for quite some time, and all of us are trying to deliver against that. Okay, so then you go back to the NBA. I got to ask you, David Stern, this guy's a, a legend. For the audience listening, he was the commissioner of the NBA he was really at the forefront, again, you'd know better than me, of internationalizing the game. He brought in the scope of what possible was. Obviously, at the time, he was selling a pretty awesome product with you know Michael Jordan in the league and Yao Ming and, and others that were just great ambassadors for the sport. How incredible was that guy? David, you know, look, in your lifetime, You'll go back through your career and say, you know, what are the people I've worked for? And I've felt myself incredibly fortunate to work for people who are always not easy, <laughs> but inspiring. And, you know, I can look at the current set of the executives that I've had a chance to work for going back to Keith Reinhardt at DDB and Chuck Primer, but right into David Stern, without a doubt, and Adam, both. Like I had, you know, working for Adam for the end of my time at the NBA Super fortunate, and now I work for Bobby Kotick on the Activision Blizzard side, who's a, a titan in our industry. Like, that's what you wish for in your career, right? Is Adam being the current commissioner of the NBA, Bobby being the current CEO of Activision Blizzard. That's right. Yeah, yep. yeah, exactly. So, you know, it went from David Stern to Adam Silver. I was there for both of them, and then now for, for Bobby Kotick. So, you know, look, when my time is over and I'm done working and looking back and saying I've worked for these type of individuals, I mean, everybody hopes that their career can take that kind of path. Yep. Oh man, my curiosity is running wild right now. There's no way we're going to finish this in an hour. So most people don't know this, but the most popular sport in China is basketball. That blew my mind. By the way, China's not very small. There's a shitload of people in that country. And the NBA is the most popular sport. What was it like doing business in China? Let me just start there. (laughs) Man, like anything I've ever experienced, I spent a Big part of my career in Europe, I've worked across every European country. I feel like one of the skill sets I've developed is being able to communicate and connect with all kinds of cultures. China had its own set of challenges, personally and professionally. I mean, we moved there with our entire family. My kids went to you know an international school there in Beijing for a few years. But what was amazing about it was, you mentioned it, the love that the Chinese have for the game of basketball. No matter where you go, there is a basketball court in every school, in every park, in every military installation. Everywhere you go, there's a basketball court. And there's there's a basketball court in every major office building, for the most part, throughout China. And the love is there. And 
credit goes to people like David Stern who realized the opportunity years ago. They were putting videotapes on planes and flying them over, getting them four days late on CCTV to show Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and Larry Bird play basketball, and it really built from there. So going into work in that market, while really for the first time in my life, really understanding what it meant to feel like a minority and someone who's sort of really a fish out of water and a foreigner. Do you speak Chinese? I had to have an interpreter. Now, I'm fortunate enough that my kids now are on there having learned Chinese some there and have continued to hear they're now quite good, but obviously there you had to have an interpreter. And, right. and that's part of working there, which is the trust factor of under, if you're really getting the information you need to have in the way things are translated. But the people were wonderful. I had an incredible team that if you just figured out how to connect with them, they would run through walls for you. And we were selling an incredible product. We built wonderful partnerships, but it's a challenging market. You've seen what can happen to someone's business in that market when people tweet about things. You know the history of what happened with, with Jeremy Moore and the Houston Rockets and the impact that had on the NBA's business. I had just left and everything we had, not just me, but others had built prior to that you know, it took a big hit and it's going to take a while for the NBA to sort of build that back up. But I have every confidence that they will because the passion for that sport is still there. So, look, learning to sell and, and operate in that market is an experience that I'll take with me no matter where I go. And even now in the role that I'm in, you know, we have five teams in China. And so my ability and my team's ability to operate with those with our partners there, understand how to work with them. We have media partnerships with people like Billy Billy. We have a relationship at a game level with Tencent. Like, I think all the experience I got from my time in China has gotten to me to the place I'm in today, where I can run a business that's global in scope, that has teams in that market and business in that market, and understand how to operate that way. And so the experience will be forever invaluable to my career. It's amazing. My favorite book, well, maybe my second favorite book in the world is Shoe Dog. And Phil Knight has a story about when he first went to Japan and tried to do a deal with uh, Onitsuka, which was the, the shoe manufacturing company there. And they didn't trust him. That was the main issue. Like they just didn't trust this white guy coming in. And there's a, it's just, it was very different business culture. And he came in with one way of communicating and they came in with another and, and he would get straight down to the point and they would go to dinner and, you know, have him over for drinks and, and his, at their family's house before. And uh, ultimately, it actually ended up not working very well in that business relationship. And I think maybe part of the problem was that he was like this upstart shoe company, right? I think what you probably had in on your side of the court, no pun intended, is a product that is incredibly loved. Like people wanted to talk to you. You were a popular guy there. Is that fair to say? No, you're right. It was kind of nice to walk around with an MBA business card and you could get in to meet with pretty much anyone that you wanted to meet with, which was has not has not been sort of historically <laughs> the way salespeople function, you know, in their careers. It was it was really great. But you brought up a good point, which is you have to quickly figure out how to operate within that environment, within that culture and how business is played. And there are dinners that you're having, there are conversations that you're having that are there to just build a relationship before you get into business conversations. And those exist. And look, they exist here in North America. They exist in Europe. It's just done indifferently, right? And so if you understand that, look, this is part of the process to get to where I want to go, then you embrace it and you do it. Like where you oftentimes fail is if you try to take, well, this is how we did it here in North America or in the US, 
and attribute that same process to going to try to do business in China. It doesn't work, right? So you have to be able to pivot. You have to be able to understand that there's a different way and a process that will get you where you want to go. You just have to embrace it. And so that's a big part of the learning. And I've been able to sort of now take that. And I think I can now, you know, attribute that to much of the way we operate globally with the current business that I'm in. I can't imagine how gnarly that is. So another question, I'm just going to follow my curiosity rabbit hole here because I have this in my notes and you mentioned it. This Daryl Morey thing. So maybe for the audience, and, and I just think you'd have such a cool perspective on it. He is the GM, was the GM of the Rockets, I think now is of the Sixers. And what did he do? And how did that unfold? Yeah, look, I was out of the NBA when this went down too. So I was seeing it as a fan of the NBA, wasn't working at the NBA when it went down. So I Working with China is complicated. And, you know, the, the facts of what happened are Daryl sent out a tweet in support of Hong Kong and China has a much different point of view on where Hong Kong yeah. is and what Hong Kong is. And that causes, you know, strain in any business relationship and, and no matter how innocent things were meant to be. And those are the complications that working in markets like China have, all businesses have, right? Like, not just the NBA, not just us, but any U.S. business operating the market needs to understand how and does understand how things work in China and, and the complications and the challenges that can have here back at home and also there. And part of, you know, when you're trying to run a global league and the NBA sees themselves as a global league, we see ourselves as a global league. We all understand the challenges and the opportunities that exist in trying to run something globally. Right. And there are companies like FIFA and the Olympics that also are always dealing with these type of things. And it's it's trying to just, you know, for us, and I'm sure for the NBA as well, it's just focusing on the game of basketball for them. And for us, it's just focusing on our game, right? Whether it be the Overwatch League or the Call of Duty League, it's all about yeah. the game. It's all about being as inclusive as possible. Politics should not be involved. We yeah. are talking to the gamers. We are talking to people who love our games and love our IP and try not to wade into places that end up being very political. It's just, it's tough sometimes because, Oftentimes, these cultural differences do get into politics when it's not meant to be. Yeah. Answered like an eloquent politician. Okay. One more question on it, and then I'll let it go. Were you pissed? Because, like, you did all this work. You built all of this great energy towards the partnership between these two places. Then CCTV wasn't broadcasting NBA games anymore. Like, we weren't even, like, they weren't even seeing the game. And I don't know, like, just someone that's competitive and proud of the work that they have done and do, where you're just kind of like, damn it. <laughs> well, look, there was a lot of groundwork put into that business prior to me getting there. I think we had a good run when we were there. We hit some pretty big numbers for the first time in that league. And there were more than just myself there. There was a whole team of people there, including David Shoemaker, who was the CEO of NBA China at the time. And I'm sure all of us, if I was, you know, I personally speak for myself, of course, when it went down, you, you look at all the, the sponsors and the partners that were sort of pulling back and you say, man, that, that really sucks because I'm sure those, those relationships are still very solid locally and all sides were probably disappointed in it. But I would say that those type of things for a business like for the NBA, if you're not the NBA, it could really be detrimental to their future if you're picking right. another XYZ company. But I think for the NBA, and again, because they have this it's just such a, a deep-rooted love for the game of basketball in the market, they're going to rebound. They probably already have and probably end up will be being stronger for it. 
Yeah, they had some real core relationships with companies like Tencent and others that were still pretty stable. So, you know, look, you, you look at it, and you go, man, that's, I can't imagine if I was there when that all went down and the impact that would have had on me personally living there. But I'm confident that they have not only probably rebound, but are going to be in a better place. Fair enough. Okay. I will move past NBA and China, although I have maybe off air here. I have so many questions. So then you end up at this company, Activision Blizzard. And so it is one of the most profitable companies in the world within the purview of your ecosystem of games is Call of Duty, Fortnite, Candy Crush. Not not, not Fortnite. Fortnite is with Epic. Oh, World of Warcraft. World of Warcraft. Okay, got it. Overwatch. And it's just this machine. It's just like a juggernaut. And so let me just start with this. You just got promoted to this new job. Tell us, what is the remit of this new role? Yeah, so when I joined Activision Blizzard, those numbers, I, I didn't even do enough diligence on my own to understand <laughs> what those numbers look like. What I did know is, is that the video game business, I just looked at my own son, had to be doing quite well. Um, but more importantly, when I, when I came into the video game business, primarily it was to be the chief revenue officer for what we call our eSport Leagues business. And at the time... We were launching and had just started the process of selling franchises and launching the first ever city-based global esport league called the Overwatch League. And for anyone listening, what that simply is, is if you can take the models of the NFL, the NBA, the Premier League, and and others, the traditional sports models, and basically attribute that to esports, right? So in essence, we have, for the Overwatch League, we have 20 teams all over the world, in, in China, in Korea, North America, and Europe. And we run a city-based global franchise league. We sold franchises. We run and operate these. This is a global league with divisions. And, you know, we had a a vision of sort of home and away type of model where they would all play each other very similar to traditional sports with fans and tickets and all these things. And that's what we started doing with the Overwatch League for the first two years. Obviously, COVID gave us an opportunity to take a pause, think about where the future of this business is going to go and recognize the impact of online and the, the digital native product that we have compared to traditional sports. And so much of the results you're seeing here is a, is a real big pivot that we took when COVID hit to put all of our games online and keep going when the rest of the sports world shut down. So we, we started the Overwatch League. We then quickly moved into creating a franchise model around our biggest IP in the company, the Call of Duty, creating the Call of Duty League. We sold 12 franchises for that, primarily in North America and in Europe. And we now operate these two esport leagues, and we're running it very similar to the way you are familiar with traditional sports. And a lot of investors from that space as well. We have a mix of both what we call endemic esport investors, so people who came from the esport world, but also traditional sports. Wait, so Brandon, let me just get this straight. Let me just unpack this a little bit. You are creating a sport with a product that you've already have, right? So you have this huge user base of people playing this game. And you've basically built the equivalent of the NBA built around this IP. Whereas you have teams across the world that have their own franchises with their own owners, right? Like Robert Kraft is an owner of one of the teams who also owns the Patriots. And you're basically replicating in the digital online gaming world what 
a normal sport would be. And you're basically building it from scratch and making shit up as you go, basically. Is that fair? You, you have it right. I mean, I, making shit up as you go, you're definitely iterating because we've had, <laughs> we've had failures. And, and I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that in like a... I didn't no, mean it's that true in, though. It's totally true. <laughs> like we had a vision and we're trying to execute to get that vision, but you always get thrown curveballs, right? If you think about, I have a 10-year-old son and I watch how he engages with content. And I will go and sit and watch a two-hour basketball game or a two-hour soccer game, sometimes a four-hour baseball game or a three-hour football game. He won't. He's no interest. Even though he plays these sports, he has no interest in watching a sport for two hours. He might watch for the first 10, 15 minutes or watch the end if I get him to come down. What he will do is go on his iPad and consume digital content, gaming content, whether it be on YouTube or Twitch or playing himself for hours, right? And this is not watching just Watching people. Watching other people play, play those games. And here's play the, the games that he plays. Correct. Primarily for him, it's Minecraft. But here's the difference. If you're a basketball fan, you can look at yourself and be like, I'm not LeBron James. I'm not 6'8", 250 with those type of skills, right? But if you're a video gamer, you could, in theory, look at someone doing what they're doing and say, like, I could do that. Enough practice, enough time, enough grinding. Like, maybe I could be that good, right? So there's a, there's a connectivity there to the ability to be a, potentially a professional or a streamer, for that matter. Like, we could go down a whole rabbit hole of sort of the streaming world and what happens in places like Twitch and YouTube. But the reality is, is that you take a game like Call of Duty where over 200 million people have played it, right? I've played Call of Duty and I'm... I'm no longer in the sort of sweet spot of who plays Call of Duty these days. I'll still sit down and play it. It's been around for a long time with these amazing franchises. If you can create a product and a sport around an IP like Call of Duty that can not only engage people who currently play it, but who have played it in their lifetime, that's a tremendous opportunity, right? Like the ability to like connect to these 200 million people that have played Call of Duty in its lifetime is a huge, huge, huge upside. And so that's what we're trying to create. And that's what we started to create. Now we're in the second year of the Call of Duty League. And then the way that people consume it is differently, right? Like, whereas I go on and watch traditional linear television to watch, you know, an NBA match or, or an NFL match, where people go to watch our content is in the digital space, whether it be on YouTube, who's our primary partner for both our Overwatch League and, and the Call of Duty League, or on Twitch for products like World Series of Warzone and a lot of other type of streaming products that we have. So this is where the 18 to 26 year olds are going to consume their content. It's primarily in this digital space and we have a product that's perfectly built to put it where they're going to watch. And that's what just makes this industry so exciting and starts to get to some of these crazy numbers that you talk about because that's just where people are consuming their content these days. The guy whose job you're inheriting now or taking on or whatever you want to call it, he had a great quote when he was taking on this job. And it really put some pieces together in my head for me. He said, one of the great indicators for professional sports is familiarity with the game you played when you were young or interacted with. And it really resonated like, okay, I played soccer. I love watching soccer. I didn't play that many video games. But this generation, it is like they're just so familiar with it. And I think the point that he was making is that that familiarity is a great leading indicator of engagement for that 25-year-old when they're 15 or whatever. And that's basically these video games. That's right. I mean, I would be lying if I didn't say that our, our primary target is people who play these games because you're talking about, in many cases, 20, 30, 40 million people a month playing some of these titles, right? And so... 
how do you just connect with them? It's no different than for me in basketball. Played it my whole life, grew up playing it, watched it, and that's what created a fan for right. me. And that's why I'm so interested in the NBA playoffs. That's why I'm so invested in certain teams. And then the other side of it is the local fandom, right? I grew up in Dallas, Texas. It's made me a Dallas Cowboy, a Dallas Maverick fan. And that's the teams I follow and I love. And so by us creating city-based franchises, our hope is that we will over time build these generational fandom, right? Like I, when we first launched the Overwatch League, we went down and did our first big live event in Dallas, Texas. Our Dallas team sold out 5,000 seats for two days, so 10,000 people, to watch their home team play on stage against other teams. And when our Houston team showed up and Dallas played Houston, it was like being at a Maverick game playing the Rockets, right? Just all the same chance and Come all the things. Houston sucks. You, like the same environment. Just people who have passion for these video games yeah, yeah. instead of passion for a traditional sport. When we launched our grand finals for the Overwatch League, we sold out the Barclays Center, right? We sold out the Wells Fargo Center in, in Philadelphia because, again, like these are people passionate about what they play. They want to go watch the best of the world play it. And it's very accessible for them. And so that's the model. Dude, are you like the stern of multiple esports leagues right now? Like, did you just take on commissioner role of not just one sport, but a bunch of them? Like, is that is that the gig? Well, we don't like to use the word commissioner. <laughs> Honestly, like I wouldn't sit here today and tell you I know the ins and out of the, what is the right product. I had incredible people over both product-wise over both the Overwatch League and the Call of Duty League that roll up into me. And my job is to be able to help them and help us all find the right models to build these businesses off of and grow engagement. And so I trust them a lot on, on that product. And yes, I've gotten to know the product because I've had to, and I've played yeah. those games and I've been doing it now for almost four years. But there are people that have been living these brands since they were built, you know? And so I trust them, but at the same time, I make myself knowledgeable enough that I can question and we can sort of iterate and build these things and, and continue right. to evolve these leagues. And previously, before the promotion, you were co-leading the group with a product person. Is that right? And then now that person rolls up to you? Yeah. So I was chief revenue officer over the business side. We have Johanna Ferris, who was over the product side, and we both sort of co-led the department into Tony Petiti. Who got it. Got left. it. Johanna recently was promoted to the general manager of the Call of Duty franchise. Sweet. So she now runs the Call of Duty franchise. And I, with Tony just departure, I've taken over the head of the entire group. So I now have the product people and the business people reporting into me. I have a shit grin on my face. You have the coolest job. Um, <laughs> well, so <laughs> thank you. But it's it, it, sometimes it's still a job. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Every job is still a job. I think at least maybe 10% of the time. If, there's no way you can not feel like a job for at least, you know, if you're doing 90% and it doesn't feel like a job, you're at the upper echelon well, and of the other great thing I jobs. I would say to you is like, you know, in many cases, don't forget, like this is a big, huge video game company that does things that is majority sort of focused on these games. We're in essence a startup inside our own company, right? And while we were very sizable, what we're trying to do is in an industry that continues to sort of expand, right? And the esports industry itself I don't want to say it's in its infancy. It's been around for quite some time, but it's still in early stages. And so we have a lot of investment, a lot of growth that still has to happen inside this very well-funded, well-established video game company. So as an example, this Overwatch Sports League, Overwatch is one of the games, right? Its Boston team is owned by Robert Kraft, the Patriots owner. 
Anheuser-Busch, Coca-Cola, and State Farm are all sponsors of season two of this league. So let's break this down a little bit more. In this league, there's, what, 12 to 20 franchises that their own sports teams. They wear jerseys, right? And they have patches on their arms, like their sponsors. And they sell tickets online. And they have fans. And do they get drug tested? <laughs> yeah, so... We have a drug policy in both okay. leagues. So, oh, you're drug testing video game. Uh, well, yeah. Well, there, there's a long okay, history. Are they called athletes? Like, is it offensive for me to call them video game players? I don't know if it's offensive, but we would definitely call them athletes. I mean, yeah, okay. the, the things that they do are at the top of their chain of what they do. And, and if you play those games and you watch what they do, there are many times that you'll look at them and be like, I have no idea how they just did that, right? So yeah, you're you're exactly right. Like we have 20 teams in the Overwatch League, we have 12 in the Call of Duty League. We have global sponsors and local sponsors, wonderful partners like some of those that you mentioned, including many others. We have a media partner in YouTube and Google who are our primary source of where you go to watch these games. So you know, a lot of the business model behind traditional sports is relevant for what we're doing. But there are new models on top of it, right? So if you take a look at traditional sports, the primary vehicles for revenue tend to be media rights. Right. That's the big value in, in sports is sort of the media distribution dollars. The second can be sometimes sponsorship, although, you know, locally for teams, it's oftentimes their local media deals and their ticket revenue and their parking revenue and concessions and all that stuff that exists, which has been missing during COVID, which will come back. And then sponsorship, obviously. In our world, you have all those things. And although I would say that the sort of ticket revenue and local sponsorship, all that stuff has been real challenging because of COVID when you don't have local events happening in market, when you're not having fans go to things and everything's just happening online. But we have other areas of revenue of opportunity, right? We can put brands into the game. We can create unique skins. We sell what we call digital products that digital goods. So if you're a Dallas Fuel fan, right? That's one of our Overwatch League teams. You can go on and buy skins, let's say Dallas Fuel on it, that would go on your character when you play the game of Overwatch with your friends. So you're representing your team, right? Huh. When you're playing the traditional game. So that crossover between the game and the leagues is really unique, right? On the Call of Duty side, you could get a skin for your weapon that represents your favorite team or an operator skin. Like So all these things are allowing much more deeper connectivity to the game as well as the league, which is unique to our space than, say, traditional sports. It's just a way of expressing your identity in a digital way. It's I no think different of like, than why if do you I... wear a Kobe Bryant jersey exactly. or LeBron exactly. jersey walking around town. The only difference is, is that when you're not playing this game that tens of millions of other people are playing every month and you're going online with your friends or into an online world where you don't know anyone, you're repping what's passionate to you. Yeah, makes total sense. So Overwatch was the first major esport thing that really happened. And that was in 2017, 2018 when it, when it launched. Pretty much like around the time that you came, you probably launched it. It was pretty visionary at the time when it happened. Um, still is. Why aren't other leading companies copying this strategy? Well, look, so credit goes to Bobby Kodig and his vision for building this business for sure. We weren't the first to create esports. We had been doing esports for a while, as many of our other competitors had. We had just decided to take a very disparate and sort of wild, wild east and west system and 
create a structure to it that brands could understand and that we could really monetize and build, right? That could really be something that could grow, right? And rather than just sort of like a bunch of tournaments happening all over the world that you can't control, you can't manage, good for the ecosystem, but in terms of a business model, it's very tough to take brands into that type of ecosystem because you can't control it. So what we did is by creating a franchise system, we're focused on our ability to not only bring brands into an ecosystem, but create franchise value, no different than if you own a sports team, how the value of your franchise grows over time, right? Because of the growth of that business. Yeah. And so that's sort of the model that we then created and then have sort of been iterating over time. And I do think that other gaming companies, many other gaming companies are into esports. They just all look at it and create their own models for that makes more sense to them, right? Like, yeah. So it's just that this model, while we continue to iterate and evolve it, is what we believe works for our IP. It allows us to take it to the market in a very unique way. But in some game, the way I look at it, like it's not like, oh, we have to win for others to not win. I think the entire industry can win in its own way and can grow in its own way just because of the popularity of where video games are today. And so no one model is going to sort of be the dominant. I do think that multiple models will work. This is just the one that we believe works for us. Makes sense. Brandon Schneider, who we had talked about earlier, the new president of the Warriors. So I think you guys know each other well. I was texting him last night trying to get some dirt on you, some drunken story in China, whatever. And he had a bunch of questions teed up for me. I'm not going to actually have enough time to get to all of them, which is disappointing. But the one that I do want to ask is that he said, one to 10, where in the maturation curve are we in esports? Yeah, well, as you know, and I heard on his podcast, they're invested in this space as well. So it's a good question by him. I think we're probably around three. You know, I initially maybe thought, a year ago, we were actually further along. I think COVID has had an impact, not in necessarily a negative way, but in a way for us to rethink what this industry needs to grow. It's an interesting model right now because what is important is engagement, right? How many people are watching or engaging with this content? That in and of itself is sometimes in direct conflict with monetization. For instance, when you sell media, and media rights, you normally, in order to unlock the revenue that you would like to get for the value of your content, you oftentimes need to sell that exclusively, right? It's the same reason why the NBA is watched on ESPN or the NFL is now on every channel, but they are providing exclusive packages of games to Fox, right? To CBS, to NBC, to ABC and ESPN. So that exclusivity is what drives value. That also though limits eyeballs in many ways, right? That means that if we are living on a certain channel, that that channel owns that content and you are not in multiple channels. But then that if you decide to go to multiple channels, well, then you're never going to unlock the same amount of revenue, right? So following the traditional sports model to a T requires us to make hard decisions there on engagement. However, what we then have, though, that they don't have is these other opportunities revenue-wise, like digital items, digital content that we could supplement that and say, okay, let's make a decision that's a little bit more broad in our engagement because we have these other revenue sources to make up for it. Right now in this industry, the primary, the primary source of revenue is sponsorship across the board. I want to say it's something like 70% of revenue for the entire industry. That's not a sustainable model, right? And that's why I say we're in level three out of 10, because 
for all of these businesses, not just ours, but for anyone in this space, sponsorship cannot be the dominant or the only source of revenue for growth. We're already starting to see esport teams sell things like naming rights. So now imagine the Dallas Mavericks calling themselves the Nike Mavericks, right? Or the most premium thing that they have to sell in esports. We're already seeing it. We've seen esport teams sell to cryptocurrencies naming rights for their entire organization. I'm not saying that's a bad thing because it unlocked major revenue, but it is another example of this is the only real source of revenue and the only real thing that this business is, this ecosystem, this in- industry is currently able to monetize. That has to change. There have to be other sizable sources of revenue, yeah. whether that be media, whether that be digital items, whether that be something else, for this business to really mature and become major players like you see in traditional sports. And that's why I think we're at a three. I do think, though, that's going to happen because there's just too much engagement. There's too many people watching this stuff. And the audience is so attractive because we're talking about a young, youthful, both male and female audience engaging in this stuff that that is such a valuable audience at such scale that it's going to happen, but it's going to need more time. Okay, two or three more questions, then I will let you go, I promise. One of my partners, his name is Bing Gordon. I don't know if you know Bing, but he was the chief creative officer at Zynga for over 20 years, sat on the board of Amazon for about that time, literally came up with Prime. So before this, I was like, Bing, educate me here. And he sent me a bunch of questions. Again, disappointed I'm not going to get to all of them, but there's a few that I want to ask you. The first is what can other entertainment businesses like movies, TV, and music learn from the games business? We actually learn from them in many ways. What I really think they do well is understand how you build a franchise, right? Disney's great at this, like you build a franchise around a movie we look at things in a very similar way, right? We see the Call of Duty as a franchise. We see Overwatch as a franchise. And when we sell it to brands, we sell it as a franchise. We say, hey, don't you want to be a part and have a relationship with the Call of Duty franchise? What does that mean? It means you're going to be a partner of the game. It can be a partner of our mobile product, of our Warzone product, and of our eSport product, right? You're, you're part of the holistic environment around Call of Duty League or the Call of Duty franchise. What could they learn from us I think primarily it would be focusing on how we can take the experience that you get when you play the game and bring it to someone's life, right? The movie industry is very good at taking you into an experience, right? Although I would say that it's more challenging now and if people don't go to big theaters, people watch these things at home, you're now watching it on a different size screen with maybe not the same environment surrounding you. But our ability to sort of take that experience everywhere. A good example is Call of Duty. Like if you play Call of Duty, you can play it when you're at home on your PC. You could go to your friend's house, drop in on his PlayStation or his Xbox. Could be on the road, going on vacation, pick up your mobile phone. Everything is cross-platform, right? You're now collecting these things. You're being, you're able to connect with your friends, play with your friends in any situation that you're in. You're not stuck to just a single screen experience, right? You're now able to rep your team when you're playing all these games. So I think the ability for us to sort of surround our fans and our players with a complete experience is something unique. And having it all live in a digital space is really what enables that. Because it's so digitally native, you can experience it pretty much anywhere at any time. 
Yeah, I think you're dead on. I said my second favorite book was Shoe Dog. My first was Ride of the Lifetime with Bob Iger, and he was a mastermind of- The, the audio book in that is wonderful. Just listen. Is it? Oh, man. And he's the mastermind of taking something digital and creating it into the physical world. Okay, one more. This is from Bing. So many of the top hit games are extensions of properties released more than a decade ago. How do you decide when to invest in all new games versus sequeling or remastering a hit? So- I know just enough to be dangerous on this, so I'm probably not the, the best person to answer that question, but what I would say is don't forget how long it takes to create a great game, right? Years. You don't just pull a, a game together in a year. You know, we have studios that have been working on games for two, three, four, five, six, seven years. And oftentimes, you know, I'll give you a good example with Overwatch. Oftentimes you're working on something and it pivots and becomes something else, right? Overwatch is actually a game that was born out of Blizzard working on a different product and then said, wait a second, maybe this works better over here, right? And then made a, made a pivot and then created this incredible world that was very new and very fresh when it launched in Overwatch 2, which we believe will be launching very soon. We'll just sort of iterate upon that. But at the same time, if you've got wonderful franchises, you double down on them, right? Like World of Warcraft has been 20 some odd years and continues to be an incredible franchise with a subscription-based model that just does amazing stuff because the world keeps expanding. The experience can be new, even if it's a franchise that's been around for 20 years. Call of Duty is another great example. Every year we have a new Call of Duty. It's just that it's a different experience. One might be Black Ops, one might be World War. So you have this freshness to it, even though the franchise, it's like Marvel, right? You might drop in and watch Guardians of the Galaxy yeah. But then you'll watch Iron Man over here, or maybe you're going to yeah. watch, you know, the new right. thing over here, but it's still Marvel, right? It's still Call of Duty. Yeah. As long as we don't have like 20 Overwatches, like we have 20 Fast and Furiouses, I'm not going to complain. <laughs> I wrap all these things the same way. What does the word grit mean to you? Listen, I think it's probably come up in many of your other podcasts, but for me, grit represents this combination of perseverance and personal passion, right? It's understanding and have enough self-belief that you can go through a lot of no's to get to a yes and persevere through that. And it doesn't mean you have to be the smartest person. Grit is oftentimes recognizing where your weaknesses are and where your strengths are and being able to double down on those strengths and using that perseverance and the passion that you have to break through and get the job done and get the deals done because you're going to hear no a lot more than you're going to hear yes in many cases. So that to me is correct. If someone wants to work for you, work with you, be a part of this ride, are you hiring? And if so, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Talent is incredibly important. So I would tell you that we're always hiring, right? If it's the right type of person, talent is, I think we're all in a fight for the best talent we can have. I would say that LinkedIn is not right now the best place. I, I you know, just dropping me a note on LinkedIn saying, hey, let's connect. It doesn't work anymore. <laughs> So for me, it's tracking me down to my assistant, going through our HR department, being, again, persistent in your approach. That's the best way to get a hold of me. I, I don't have time to check all my uh, social media stuff to sort of respond to people who just want to connect, right? You've got to show me a little bit more than that. This was a blast. Thanks, Brandon. Hey, man, I appreciate it so much. Thanks again for all the great questions. Hopefully I, I didn't disappoint. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. 
If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.